ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. Brought to you by Take-Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. Hi, Luke. How are you, man? Good, yourself? Oh, I can't complain. You know, other than we've had a long day of working over here and you're just getting started over there. Yeah, it's midday. I'm ready to go riding. Excellent. Is that what you're going to do after we're done? Yeah, straight after this, I'll head out to rod. I've got to do some suspension testing. Excellent. Um, what kind of shocks do you use? Uh, Ryan Riga Racing suspension from Holland. Uh, uh, oh, from Holland. Uh, you yeah. pretty happy with that stuff so far? Um, yeah, I did some testing when I was there back in 2017. And um, yeah, I really liked it and uh, got along with the guys really well. Do you go out and do your own testing or are you um, having somebody go with you that's, that's more shot qualified or, or is it everything that you've learned in your time so that you do it yourself? I have to, I have to do everything myself here. There's no one to, that is able to help. Um, there's very limited people here that build suspension at all. And especially for um, ATVs, there's nobody around that can really get it to the level that we need it. Really? So you've done a crash course learning on pretty much everything. Yeah. If you get it wrong, you lose races. It's um, pretty, yeah, do it yourself. Same when I used to run uh, Fox suspension. Everything was done by myself with the uh, different air pressures and you just got to try and work it out yourself. Do you service the shocks that you use now by yourself? Uh, no, I, I am the Australian distributor for Riga suspension for ATVs. And um, yeah, I have a good contact with them and we just send them all the way back to Holland and then they send them back fully serviced and rebuilt. Doesn't that cost a pretty penny? Um, it does, but at least it's done correctly. And they do change a lot of parts when they're due for a service because they have a, uh, a life expectancy on the suspension. So you have to do them just like a motor. There's an hour, a um, hour bracket that you've got to do them in. Yeah, the typical with most suspension. You know? Yeah, we've jumped a little ahead, getting excited here in, in our conversation. You know, I mean, I love it when we can jump right into the meat of things. Um, tell everybody where you're at. Um, I live in Perth, Western Australia, which is right down the bottom of Australia. Well, is there a lot of great whites in the water there? Um, yeah, you watch where you go for a swim. There's a lot of places you don't go. Because of sharks or because of crocs? Uh, sharks. Crocodiles are um, about 3,000 kilometers north of where I am. Oh, so you don't have any where you live? No. But you have Down where we are, it's cold water. But you have deadly snakes and spiders that'll kill you and plants that'll kill you. Uh, most like there's um would be snakes just out like a couple of meters from where I'm sitting now in the bush. Wow. We're, on a, we're on a bit of land where I am right now. And um, yeah, there's snakes all through the bush, just out the back fence. And we have uh, kangaroos come into the property up to the back door at nighttime to eat the grass. 
that's it, it, to me that's kind of cool you know because we get coyotes and raccoons and squirrels and rabbits but nothing substantial like a raccoon and no yeah um, yeah at night time like um the other day we we're driving home from up north and um yeah there's emus running down the side of the road and you just got to watch out because they like to cross the road all the time and especially kangaroos at night time will jump in front of a car trying to hitch a ride or just not knowing any better um, they just try to take out your front of your car. You hit a kangaroo, it'll smash the whole front of your car in. Wow. And, um, yeah, it'll ruin your trip very quickly. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Kind of like hitting the, a deer here. The owls are very bad when you get further up north. There's, um, they're all on stations and there's no fencing. And you get in a lot of trouble when you hit one. Oh, yeah. You'll know about it. The trucks, because um, we have a lot of trucks heading up the northwest, and, yeah, they hit a lot of cows. Wow. Open range, man, open range. Oh, yeah. Is it true that that a large portion of the land is non-usable or non-public accessible for off-road vehicles? Um, Yeah, you don't really – where I am, you're for about an hour around the city. Wouldn't go much further north of the city than an hour on, like, a daily trip. Um, you then you're just into the bush. There's nothing out there. There are just uh, stations and mine sites. Uh, you, you mean mines and 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 when you say stations, what are those? A station like a cattle station, like a it's like a massive farming area, okay. a couple of hundred thousand hectares and stuff like that uh, per per station. So if somebody um, has a lease from the from the council on that land, and they look after it and maintain the maintain the land. What do you guys do there for a living? I mean, you and your family. Um, myself, I am an automotive mechanic. I fix cars all day. Nice. Uh, that's my eight, eight till five every day, five days a week. And then uh, my parents are songwriters. Well, my dad's a songwriter and my mum runs the business. Excellent. So, so the way we would say it over here is, is your dad uh, puts up billboards or puts up signboard for people, you know, yes. so you're, so you're an advertising company is telling you, Hey, this is the sign or the ad that we want to run on this sign here. Here's the layout, put it up. Yeah. And he also, he's old school. He was back when they used to paint signs before stickers and graphics were made. Whoa. So he is old school. Oh, yeah. My granddad started the business. It's a family business, but uh, it ends with my dad. <laughs> you're not going to follow? No, I'm not that great. What, okay. uh, do you have any brothers or sisters? I have a younger sister. She's 18 months younger than me. And, um, yeah, she is currently looking for a job, but she lives on the east coast in, of Australia, in New South Wales. How big of a difference in uh, the countryside is that for you guys uh, versus city versus I'm assuming you're a little more country where you live. Um, yes. Yeah, a little bit more open where we live compared to the East coast is a bit more full on. She lived on the gold coast for a while. She's been living there for seven years, I think. And um, she just moved down to Newcastle, which is a bit smaller town. I think I'm not hundred percent sure. I've never been there. Wow, it's such a small place, and you guys have, and you've never been there. Yeah, place wow. is so small, but it's so far apart. It's a five-hour plane ride to get anywhere on the east coast. That's crazy. Yeah, 
That's so crazy. And yeah. it's thousands of dollars to get the bikes there to go racing. You can't drive there. Oh, you can drive, but it takes two and a half days. Uh, small if, roads. If not. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because so I've never driven. I've um, we drove to the Alice Springs, which is in the center of Australia last year. It took just over two and a half days to get there because um, driving at night is very dangerous with kangaroos. So we stop and sleep. But um, yeah, that that was a long drive. So you had to go across the bottom and then go up to the center. There's no central highway. Well, there is, but it's dirt. <laughs> and wow. taking a trailer on that road is not not a great idea. <laughs> wow. I'm getting my I'm getting my Australian lesson in. Uh, I've always wanted to come and visit. Uh, I'm deathly afraid of crocodiles and sharks, and I am extremely excited to see them in person uh yeah you have to go look for them they, they don't just pop up well i'm not you have to go outside to go if you want to find a shark you've got to go and yeah have a good look for it yeah i'm not going to be looking it's okay <laughs> and crocodiles yeah the the only place i've seen a crocodile is in a zoo really yeah i went to the australia zoo uh, back in 2013 the one that steve Irwin had started yeah um and that's the only place i've really seen crocodiles <laughs> i've never seen one in the wild i've never been in the area to see one in the wild that's unbelievable it, it, the way they make it sound over here is like they're in your you know in your pond in your front yard oh they they, they would be in the northwest just not here not just, just not where you live no wow Bit like you guys in Florida, you, they got crocodiles down there, but you don't have them in California. No, uh, not about forty minutes from here. They found uh, some alligators in a in a in a pond, like a uh, a slough, and yep. freaked out because <laughs> they, we don't have them. Yeah. Um, so they did a big study and a big search and found that you know there was one female she never laid any eggs she was still basically an adolescent that somebody had turned loose and uh fortunately nothing bad happened you know nobody got bit nobody got ate but nobody nobody goes in the slough anyways so uh, nothing's gonna happen to you anyways yeah well you guys can own them and like well it's just like watching tiger king you guys own lions and tigers and just all those exotic animals, or we can't do that in Australia. It's against the law. Well, it's technically frowned on here too. Yeah, and you have a lot of money. Yeah, where well, there's no one that has that sort of thing here. Well, that that's good. I'm uh, I'm glad to hear that because I don't think anybody should own them, anyways. <laughs> yeah, but let's talk some ATVs, man. Um, you're going to go out and do some shock testing. Um, I know that you've been doing some motor testing and you've been uh, dealing back and forth with my brother, Lauren, a little bit. So you, you got some things going on there for you. Um, let's go back in time. How did ATVs come into your life? And is this a lifelong passion and something that you're going to continue to do? Um, yeah, we started a long time ago i think i was seven years old when 
Dad brought home an ATC 73-wheeler um, for the first time. My grandparents owned a little bit of land and uh, we made a little track and we started riding out there. And then uh, I think that was an 80, a 74 model. Okay. Uh, 73-wheeler. Had the headlight on the front and the white stickers on the tank. And then... Um, my cousin had an 85 model, the four-speed 73-wheeler. And um, my dad purchased that and that became my bike and my sister, she got the older one. And we just rode them around for, I think it was like three or four years. And dad bought an ATC 250R three-wheeler. So there was the three of us riding around on, on three-wheelers at the time. And then um, Honda released the 400EX. Back in 99. Yep. Um, we used to watch all the, uh, I think you guys call it the Wavo Grundy's movie. Yep. Day. And that was my movie every day before and after school for 10, 15 years. It's all I'd watch. So the 250R quad was um, a dream of mine to, to see, let alone even own one. And um, I think it was 2000. We were up in the Lancelin sand dunes just up the road for Christmas. And my dad came home and he had seen a 250R sitting in the back of a ute, in a, uh, you guys call a truck. Okay. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I didn't, like, he couldn't believe his eyes that we'd actually seen what we'd seen in a movie. And um, so we cruised out that afternoon and my father test, tested the bike. And then we later on purchased that that TRX 250R, which was a full-built um, 19, I think it was 1996. Alan Knowles had built that bike for a desert race in America by CT Racing. And it was one of three that were on his website and advertised everywhere. So the bike was very unique and very, from what I can remember, handled amazing. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, late, later on that year, then... Um, my dad sold his three-wheeler because he had the quad and I got myself my first TRX 90 quad in 2000. Nice. And then, yeah, just snowballed from there to um, we started quad racing had begun in a, like, well, restarted here um, in Western Australia. And um, I always remembered just standing there and watching the racing and telling my dad that, I can beat these guys when I get older. I want to race. Like, this is where I want to go with it. And um, a year later, we did our first race in a 90. Um, and by 2003, the first Australian 90 championship came up. On the, it was in Victoria, uh, or Melbourne, Victoria, the other side of Australia. And my, our, my family's not very well off or anything. We, you know... We, they, I didn't realize how badly my parents struggled a little bit with it as when I was younger. We're just with the way the economy was in the country and stuff. And uh, we had to fundraise to get me to that national championship. And, what uh, year yeah, was I, that? 2003. And, and how old were you? I would have been 11. 11 yeah, 11. As a last year of school for me at that age, so before we went up up a up a, year, up a school level, and um, yeah, it was just the school fundraised for me, and uh, 
just yeah, everyone put together to help me get there. Honda Australia helped me get my bike there and stuff like that. So yeah, it was we were sitting on the start line with a I had a first in the first race, a second in the second race, and I remember my dad coming up and said to me, "We didn't come all this way to come second, so you better win." Right. It was a full, full mud race, and yeah, and I got got the win with a one-one-two. That's pretty awesome. And it just happened to be Tim Farr was actually here. So racing that event. They just released the Yamaha 450 and Yamaha brought Tim Farr over to race the Yamaha 450 and win. And he won, obviously won the championship that year. That's pretty awesome. I'm assuming you got to meet him and talk with him. Yes. I was, um, I did some coaching with a guy who used to race in America back in the nineties. And he was friends with Tim Farr, very good friends with him. So when we uh, were at the event, we got to talk to him and he introduced me to Tim Farr, which was obviously a childhood hero. Well, hey, I'm a grown man and I got to watch him race and, and spend some time with him. And, and I don't know him real well, but I have, uh, I have got to uh, be a fan and um, stand on the other side of the, uh, of the mechanics area with his mechanic. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm a fan of all these guys. They're, they're, they're bigger than life, but yet when you sit down and talk to them, they're just a regular guy. Yeah. You have this, um, you just look at them on the internet and then, yeah, when you actually meet someone in person, yeah, it just changes the way you think about them as a, and you actually get to know them and they're just exactly the same as I am. Especially we're all exactly the same. Yeah, you put your pants on one leg at a time and you got to go yeah. to work to feed your family and, you know, dreams, aspirations. It's, it's all the same stuff, you know. It's just like yeah. movie stars or politicians or, or uh, professional athletes in any other, in any other sport. You're, we're, we're putting everybody on a pedestal and really, you know, gosh, I, I, some people say that I'm famous. I'm not famous. Dude, I'm just a guy that loves to work on ATVs and has been very blessed and fortunate to go do a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, that's the way I, I just, yeah. When we got to meet some of the pros um, later on in my career, um, it was just very, yeah, they just weren't what you thought. And then when you get to speak to them, they just realize they're exactly the way you are. Yep. And you can see why they have become the people they are because they're, they just, yeah, they love what they're doing as we all do. And that's why we all do it. Exactly. You know, because you're not going to make a million dollars racing ATVs. And if you did great, good on you, you know, I mean, Hey, I'm going to be your, your biggest cheerleader because a, I'm jealous and B I'm happy for you. Yeah. There's only a handful of people that were able to make that sort of like make decent money, but most of us all have to work every day. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I just happen to work in the ATV business, so it's, it's a little different, but still, it's still a job. You still have to go to work every day. Yeah. But you know what I say? If you work it, love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Right. So, I mean, I guess I really haven't worked yet. So <laughs> one of the, one of these days I'm going to have to grow up and get a real job, I guess. Yeah. That's what they say. Um, when you uh, were growing up and riding in in uh, your grandparents' property, was 
there wildlife intrusion in that? Did it cause you guys some grief or was, were they scared of the off-road vehicles and stayed away? Um, well, the small property that they were on, there was no problem with uh, wildlife or anything. Um, but the housing is, the housings, the houses were moving in. So, um, by 2005, the, the, a company came and bought the property off them to develop it into a housing estate, which is now full of houses. Right. We had a, uh, full, uh, woods track in the backyard, uh, through past all the trees. Um, and then, yeah, we had a small little motocross track in the front yard where it was a bit more open. And now it's all houses. Now it's all houses, the whole lot. Yeah, we kind of we kind of grew up on a nice piece of property, and when we were little, we raced motorcycles um, because the three wheeler thing wasn't it wasn't that it was wasn't big, it just wasn't what we were doing at the time. And uh, now it's houses, you know, same thing. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, wh- when you were racing and you progressed into the larger classes and you got into the 450s, um, when was your first pro year? Um, so, yeah, I just stepped through very quickly. Um, the age category here is you race, a, you went from a 90 to a 200 to a blaster, Yamaha blaster. Mm-hmm. And I think I only did two and a half years on the Yamaha blaster and I won a national title in 2006. Um, and then the following year, mid season, we had our state championship. Um, and I won that on the blaster and then within three or four weeks, I stepped up to a 450 in 2007 when I turned 16. Um, cause we, that was the age that we were allowed to jump up. And, um, Unfortunately, that put me out of going and contending the national championship that year. Uh, but my first full season was in 2008. And how did you do? Was that Did you make it to the pro class or were you still in an amateur level class? I went to um, the intermediate class, which is the B class. We've got, yeah, you've got pro and then B class. Or you've got A, a and B. And then, um, so I raced the year in the B class. And I won every single race that year in that class. But um, we competed with the pros. We're on the same grid, same race. So as I, the year went on, I got faster and I was catching onto the back of the pro class and was getting fifth places by the end of the season in the pro class outright. So you were, you were ready to move up in 2009? Uh, yeah, by the end of 2008. Um, some things went on at work because I was working full time from 2000. From the day I turned 15, I worked a full time job as an automotive mechanic, and um, had some. We had some paying issues, and I had a back pay, so the boss paid me out for some stuff. And we attended the 2008 nationals, and it was down in uh, Tasmania of Australia, right down the southern end, and. I thought if I'm going to go all that way, I may as well race the pro championship. So my first ever pro race was at the Australian national title. Nice. 2007, uh, 2008, sorry. How'd you do? Um, as a rookie goes, 
little bit hot-headed, a few big crashes. But the highlight of the event, I came out in the last moto of the of the weekend because we do a five races over two days, mm-hmm. and they were 20-minute motos. And I finished the last race in fourth place, and I was on the lead lap, and everyone else had been lapped, and I was still on the lead lap my first year. On a stand, I had a Can-Am DS450 with Fox shocks and A-arms and an axle with a standard motor. Man, you were a glutton for punishment, weren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I raced the first half of the 2008 season with no on a standard Can-Am. Wow. The deal I'd signed up to um, prior. Man, I got a whole heap of new respect for you. <laughs> right. We're talking sand tracks. We race sand here with 350 dirt bikes on the track. So, the, you know, by the end of a, a, a day's racing here, the whoops get to about five to six foot deep around the sand track. Do you run a special tire combination for that? I, I know like in Latouk and in some of the European races, they run a super uh, tall type of sand tire to offset some of the, the sand racing and some of the debris they are some of the ruts they have to deal with. Um, it wasn't, we ran, would run a, like a, just your 21 on the front with a 20 on the back, just your standard size tire. Um, at the time, you are just your original tire. Wow. It wasn't until 2011 that uh, Gold Speed moved into Australia and brought in the 21-inch the rear tire, which is the bigger balloon sand racing tire that we use now. We have done for the last nine years. And it helps quite a bit. Oh yeah, they're just night and day. You run a like a Maxxis motocross tire, a twenty inch compared to a Gold Speed sand tire, just night and day. Wow. Like a like a paddle shaped tire with grooves in it. Right, and it's a what we we called them like a pro wedge, and they were like a pro wedge sand tire here, and they it looks like they use the same mold or a similar mold for that tire, and it uh, it it works good. You know, yeah, and they grow, they grow under high speed, don't they? Yeah, if you use it, if you ride long distance, they'll hit your nerf bar or your heel guard. Well, that's you know, you, you gotta you but gotta do go that fast, so we'd have to worry about it. Most of your stuff's not that fast. No, the motocross tracks here are a bit bit tighter, a bit more European style, but mostly sand whoops. Yeah, the three local, uh, the two local tracks of sand. The pictures that I seen of you riding, it looked like you were racing in red adobe. You know, the red dirt. We, oh, we, the latest photos? Yes. I'm um, racing up in the northwest of Australia where it's just red sand. So it's still sand, it's just red. Yeah, sand, sand but hard packs. So we're using 18s because it's not that, that sandy underneath. So it's, it's sort of hit the bottom pretty quick. More of a, more of a, um, it's still not like racing in the dirt over here, but it, you can run a motocross tire. Yeah. Cool, cool. Do you have a- uh, on the weekend? I was running a, I went full old school and put a set of hole shots on the rear ITB <laughs> hole. How did that I work out for you? ITB hole shots in ten years. <laughs> How did that work out for you? That was good because they work better in the loamy sand than what a Maxxis tire does. Really? 
yeah. When what is the the Maxxis tire? What what terrain do you have the best luck with those? Uh, more of a hard pack, something that's very hard that blue grooves off, or um, we have a lot of pea gravel. That's a very yes. slippery surface. Yep. So that um, we use it on that. Anything that we got to run hard tires, and we will run a a Maxxis or a Gold Speed eighteen. This episode was brought to you by Podcorn. Hi, I'm Leonard Duncan, host of ATV Talk. I want to tell you about an amazing company, Podcorn. Just like they help ATV Talk, the Podcorn team will help you monetize your podcast. If you're a sponsor and you're looking to be featured in a podcast, Podcorn is your platform to sponsor an episode. Go to their website, podcorn.com, make an account, and get started today. Remember, Podcorn, your number one source in the sponsorship industry. Go ahead. I don't have a tire uh, sponsorship, so I just flick from brand to brand on race day, whichever one works best for whichever terrain we're riding on. You Do you keep a journal or a logbook so that you can keep track of what combination suits you best at at a given place that you get to race? Yeah, we got uh, all written down all our shock specifications and springs and all that sort of stuff and gearing. So do you, I always believe that it's best to go to the facility that you're going to race with your package on the machine and you can adjust for there. Is that how you do it? Yeah, we go there. I have a sort of, we have an idea on most tracks because there's not very many tracks here. We sort of do the same tracks over and over well, forever, really. So the terrain doesn't really change. You can only change if, with like the, you know, Maxis release new tires. So we'll, we purchase them and now we'll go test those on the tracks to see if they'll work or whether we'll stay with the oldest style tire. Um, but yeah, it's only if something new comes out that we have to worry about changing. So you get, you go to the same circuit every year, you know, in the States, it's similar too. Uh, yeah, there are different places that you can go, but if you have an idea of where you're going and what portion of the country, you have a base idea what the dirt's going to be like. If you check the forecast, you check the weather, then you know, and you, you take, you have a base, a, a basic setup that you like and an idea you roll that out of the truck and try that. And then you usually take something really crazy that hardly ever works. And then something that that would be your next choice in that, in that region of the country. Um, that's how, that's how it's done for, that's how I do it. I don't know about everybody else, but. Yeah. We, um, when we load, we load a shipping container and, or a truck and uh, send that over to the East coast when we go to race compete at the Australian national championship. And yeah, sometimes I'll take five different rear tires, different styles because you're unsure with the conditions and you can only see so much on YouTube videos. And then the, uh, the dirt bikes that race on those tracks, it forms up different with the dirt bikes there to when a quad race is there. So yeah, you've just got to be ready for any condition. Exactly. You always got to be be ready for something new because it's coming. Yeah, you you never know what you're getting into. We went to one event. Um, we turned up with all our big tires because it looked like a sand track on YouTube in the videos we watched. And 
yeah, we should have had 18s on. Did anybody have 18s? Or did uh, they show up with the big tires? We just stayed with the big tires. Wow. Did you? Um, yeah, yeah, buying tires, you don't, you can't, you turn up to an event, there's no one selling tires or no one will lend you tires because they're so expensive here in Australia. Wow. That's rough. I mean, I think tires are expensive anyways, but I, I know because I see the shipping bill that you have to pay to get some of this stuff from me and it's just un, it's unreal, unreal. Oh yeah, those new ones. The uh, the bank manager had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And, and, and I tried to, to pat it as much as I could, you know, to, to help. And it was just, I mean, I was cringing when I was shipping them because I just, I couldn't get the box any smaller. I couldn't get it wound any tighter. And it didn't matter yeah. because it weighed what it weighed and they were going to, they were dinging us on weight. Yeah. You know, yeah. but those will last me one day if I go out and practice. Well, don't go practice on them, dude. Save them for a good race. <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah. I get one day out of a set of 18s at the moment. And the, the, the is it pretty coarse, even the, even though it's sand or the, the hard pack, is it, is it still really coarse? So it chews the tires up that fast. Yeah, there's a ride park um, not far from where I am. And, yeah, I can, in a day I can smoke a set of rear tires off um, and the tra whole track will be blue-grooved. That's crazy. The owner the owner will come and check to see how many tires I've gone through in a day. Does he help out or just laugh? No, he just funny because his track's black. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, uh, when you train, um, we haven't talked much about that. Do you have a, a strict regimen or a belief system in in how you can prep your body to race off road, you know, motocross or um, the long longer races that you prepare for? Um, back in the day, when I first turned pro, we had a sort of an idea, and it just came off of whatever I could see. Them, I like to watch the outdoor motocross in America. Mm -hmm. They watch the great outdoor DVDs and. Um, you just see what they're doing in some of that stuff and sort of just try and replicate what's going on with cycling and running and do a, just, yeah, I used to cycle five days a week with running in between. And I ended up getting a personal trainer later on as I got a little bit older. Um, I started to take it a bit more serious and realized that I was so close to winning um, that we needed to step it up to get, get the win that little bit more. Um, yeah, just pretty much did everything myself and just tried to work it out. But, yeah, back from 2007 to 2018, we trained every single day. And I'd have to come home from work at 5. I'd train till 6, 7 o'clock at night, and then I'd be in the shed till 10 o'clock at night working on bikes and building my own bikes and engines and combinations to go, go riding every weekend. Wow. So w when we get into the training and, and get into the depth, was, was there a weight regimen and a, a specific amount of miles ran specific amount of miles ridden? Did you chart it? Like Paul Holmes is pretty uh, diligent about documenting his stuff so that he knows where he's at all the time. And I know other riders that do that. And then there's guys like Doug Eichner that drank a Pepsi and ate ribs for 
dinner and went, well, that's close enough. Yeah, no, we, um, like I watched what I ate um, and stuff like that. These days I don't. These days I'm very relaxed and chilled out from it. I sort of, when I stopped racing motocross full time, then yeah, we just relaxed and I don't train anywhere near as much as I used to. Um, but yeah, back in the day, we used to, I used to run a heart rate monitor and just watch some of my training and we used to have a strict weekly program that I would stick to. Did and you yeah, notice on that, the bike training was completely different. Did you notice that your uh, strict regimen made you burn out quicker or get tired of the, of, of the grind quicker? Where if you would have broken up a little differently, you might have, uh, you, you, you might not have gotten tired of it so quick or you understand what I'm trying to ask here? Yeah. Um, it was more like I didn't go partying because I was so close to winning it. So like 16, 17, I was winning. And then, yeah, you turn pro and my first year pro racing in the Western Australian championship, I finished second. Um, I didn't, didn't go nightclubbing my 18th birthday. I was sitting on the side of the track watching everyone race because my Can-Am stopped. Um, and, you know, my 21st birthday, I sat at the, at the, um, out for dinner with my family getting ready to, to travel to New Zealand to race Chad Weenan and Josh Kramer. Um, so it was just wide open. I trained and I had personal trainers pushing me and, yeah, we just – whatever we could to try and win. And that's all I did was no partying. There was no nightclubbing. And so are you making up for that now? No, I still don't drink. I have never finished a, never finished an alcoholic drink in my life. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I don't see the, Oh yeah. I've got my own reasons. (laughs) Well, Hey, that's, you know, I, I don't drink because I crashed on a motorcycle, um, 20 some years ago. And, and have a residual effect when I drink from it that causes me to be ill. So I don't drink, you know? Yeah. I just wanted to win so bad that, you know, you see the guys and they're like, Oh, if you drink, you won't win. And, and that sort of thing. And it just, yeah, just how it was in my mind at the time. And yeah, it's just never really changed. I better not let you sit down and talk to Doug Eichner then because (laughs) he's going to just destroy that theory for you. Oh, uh, don't worry. I've got guys I race with, they drink and party and stuff and they still compete. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Come out of the, come out of the, come off the next day hung over and go out there and ride flawless. And you're just, how do you do that? Yeah. You know, but I just put it down to, they just, the only ones that can do it are the ones that have been doing it for a very long time. And it's just the natural ability of riding. And when you're only racing for a 10 minute, you know, you're only doing six or seven laps in a race. The fitness level's not so important. That's when you get into a 20-minute motor or a 30 like we do in Europe. That's when fitness comes into it. And training is very, very heavy. Speaking of that, how much time did you spend uh, racing abroad? Um, I've been overseas a few times. Um, to New Zealand, we did the New Zealand National Championship for 2012, which had Weenan and Josh Kramer and one of the other fellow Australians. And then 2000 and... Hey, whoa, 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 you're going a little too fast because you didn't tell me how you did. Uh, 
Well, we organised a bike um, and we raced the Australian, the final round of the Australian Championship. Um, and at the end of the day, I won the Australian Championship that day in 2012 in the pro class, my second Australian Championship. And then we had to pull the front, the, all the suspension out of my bike, the A-arms, the shocks, the rear shock, the linkage. I pulled the cylinder head off, the cam, the carby, the full exhaust, and put it all into, into three bags and flew to New Zealand, which is a two-hour two flight from Australia. And there was a, a frame with an engine sitting in it. That's all I had. And I had to put the whole bike together with my sister. Um, and I ended up running their engine because I didn't want to put my race head and cam and piston and stuff into somebody else's bottom end and then it blows up and then i got to buy someone a new motor. So I decided to run their engine, which I'm still to this day. I had no idea what it had in it. It looked like it had an aftermarket cam, but I wasn't sure. Um, wasn't very fast, but we struggled. It was the first time I'd been away racing without my parents, my family around. So I had no support crew. It was my sister and myself. And, uh, yeah, it was a very tough, very tough weekend. We had 10 races over two days. On a, strange, on a basically a strange machine. Yeah, it had my handlebars on it. And I had a set of cheap nerf bars, which we bent three foot peg mounts off of. Um, we needed to, we would go through foot peg mounts all weekend. Um, I put a set of my own tires on it. So that was at least I had something in common in my own suspension. And I'd never ridden a track to that extreme before. It was something that was a little bit above my ability at the time. Um, yeah, I was... We had a few bad races, but the good races, I was finishing third behind Josh Kramer, third and fourth. That's excellent. So that's so it's a positive outcome and a great learning experience. Very, yeah, I learned a lot, a hell of a lot that year. Um, I learned how slow I was, <laughs> very slow compared to those, th those two guys. Like I come out of the first corner and by the time I pulled a tear off, I couldn't see them anymore. They were gone. But, um, yeah, we were a good six seconds off the pace at that time. You learned. How oh, we learned a lot. So if you were to go back a, a year or so, and, and when you're racing all the time, and you raced them again, how do you think you'd fare? Well, in 2017, we raced the Quad Cross of Nations in Italy. Right. And Americans, it was the first time America went and Australia and Argentina. And I had a quad that I'd purchased. So it wasn't my full race machine, but I took a cylinder head with me um, and a camshaft and a piston and we put it all together, the combination. And I missed the tune. I've never ridden at elevation before that. Uh, we're at 2,000 feet and I had no idea about tuning a bike at a different elevation besides what I had at home. Um, and yeah, at that event, I was four seconds to five seconds off Joel Hertrick and Chad Weyman's times. And now are on their own machines though. Right. The, you're talking about the cream of the crop of the world, right? Yeah. There. You know, the, the best of the best and, and 
to be even on the same track with them and and learning at the level that you are learning. I don't think that you should look down on it at all. I think that you, you should hold your head high and for the support that you have with I think the lack of resource, I think you did pretty amazing. It was yeah, it was it was a was a very good event. Um when we looked at the qualifying times at the Quad Across the Nations, it was very clear on where you sat with the riders that were on the list. You could see the three Americans, where their lap times were. And then there was two or three guys that were like a second or two off of them. And then there was just everyone else that was four to five seconds off. And everyone was the same speed. And you could see, I think it comes down to how often you rode. That's the way I put it down to with the qualifying time. Those guys ride five days a week. These guys are riding three to four and everyone else was riding two. And you could clearly see the difference on lap times. Right. I mean, the, 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 the guys that you were talking about that come from here, that's what the, their job is. That's what they wake up that's and, job. and they train. And that's where ride. a lot of people get used with the quad cross of nations. You've got three guys that ride for a living and everyone else goes to work. Right. And that's why there is such a big difference compared to the Europeans. Right. Because there's not very many Europeans uh, that I know of that, that that's their living. They still have to have a job. They, they do get to train. They just don't get to train at the same level. Yeah, the Europeans are very lucky that the, um, the tracks are open at the hours that they are, especially in, uh, in Holland, because you can ride from 5 to 11 o'clock at night after work. So you right. can ride every day where here in Australia, it's dark at seven in summer. So you can't ride it. I get two hours to try and ride after work. Or like at the moment, it's dark by six o'clock. So I can get one 20-minute moto in after work and then I'm, it's dark. And you don't go train on the roads on your bicycle or anything like that at night, do you? Um, yeah, we have to. You don't have a choice. So you do? Yeah. All right. I uh, used to ride to work and then I'd ride from work for another hour and a half home, take the long way home with a backpack on with all my work clothes on. <laughs> You're an animal, man. With all those, with all those freaking deadly wild animals in your neighborhood and you riding around like it's no big deal. Uh, humans are more dangerous than animals, especially when there's cars involved. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably a little bit, a little bit of alcohol in a car and oh boy. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm deathly afraid of the spiders. And I watch those, I watch those uh, history channel things where they talk about the spiders over there. So, yeah. you know, I'm going to be I'm surprised there's none on the wall behind me right now. <laughs> uh, me too. Me too. A little, little freaked out, but you know, we're not, we're not going to go there. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for it to come crawling across your shoulder, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and wave at me. You know, hey, what's up? So, do you miss riding all the time now or are you okay with where you're at uh, in, in your racing life? Um, I'm happy with where I'm at with motocross. Um, we, you know, I, I still go out and I love riding. It's the one thing I love doing. I ride, I could, I would ride every day. I love riding my quad. I love working on it and I don't need to go and train every weekend, but I do because I love riding. It's the only reason I ride. 
is because it's a, you're just a huge fan and just, it, it's yep. something you love to do. Yeah. And then I'll, when I'm finished writing, I'll come home and I'll watch YouTube videos of, of the, you know, I like to watch Joel Hedrick and Chad Wayne and ride and I'll, I study what they're doing and, you know, you learn from watching other people. Right. And I've got a lot of friends in Europe and that we send videos back and forth. So it's good. That's awesome. I wanted to ask earlier, and we got sidetracked on talking about other stuff. Have you done any cross training between two wheelers and and the quad, or do you ride a two wheeler at all? Um, 2014, I bought a two wheeler. I took a year off, and I blew a motor on my practice bike. As soon as I stopped racing, we went out for a, for a quick ride and put a rod through the cases and smashed everything. And um, so I put the quad aside for a, for a good four to five months and I went and bought a CR252 stroke. Nice. A 2006 model. I thought, good, reliable two stroke. Won't, it won't be expensive to run. And uh, yeah, I should have probably bought a four stroke. It was the hardest thing to try and learn to ride on. And I just never really gelled with riding a two wheeler as much. But these days I've gone back out and I purchased another two-wheeler at Christmas time. And, um, yeah, I, I've got a track just out the back gate from my partner's house and I ride my two-wheeler out there when I'm not riding my quad. What uh, what kind of bike do you ride? Uh, I have a 2015 CRF450. How do you like that? Um, it's not bad. Did you, I'm still did... trying to work out. There's all these different adjustments on the suspension. It's a bit. I'm still playing with it to get it right. Did you put an ECU on it? Not yet. I still run it on Mat one. <laughs> I got it on the beginners mode. <laughs> I, I had a 2009, and uh, I know that it got a bad rap in a lot of ways, but we, I really enjoyed it. I liked mine, and I liked the way it rode. We put a Vortex on it, and uh, I, I would never use all the power. My buddy had an old... 2004 250 and I rode it more than the 450 because it was easier to hold on to. Yeah, I've got a, the only reason I purchased the 15 was I have a 2000, well, the 15 and 16 are the same motor and I run the 2016 CRF 450 engine in my quad. Oh, nice. So I purchased the two wheeler for a spare engine to take to the desert races this, this season, but with everything that's going on in Australia, we can't do it or in the world, so all the races got cancelled. We uh, we haven't even brought that up. How has the COVID uh, affected you personally in, in your life? Um, it was pretty devastating. I did a, I, had a, I got contacted by an American company to race, to possibly do the Baja 250. Um, so I went into full training mode from December just in case it was going to happen. And um, they ended up pulling out mid-January, but I just stayed on the program and kept training desert on the desert program. Um, and I did 60 hours before March on my practice bike, or all my bikes by then. And, um, yeah, then I was ready to test the race bike, the new desert bike, but I had it all lined up. I was about to push it in the trailer, and all the events got cancelled. Mm. Um and then, yeah, we didn't know what was going to happen when that was all going to restart. So I took a month and a half off the bike to let the body recover and 
the uh, bank account and stuff like that. But my work, I had never stopped. We, um, we were essential workers, so we had to keep continue working. Um, things have, things slowed down a little for like a w- two weeks, but then it went back to normal. We, um, they shut down everything very quickly and they've been on top of it ever since. Has the, uh, has the, uh, has there been a big problem with people getting sick or that you know of or anything like that? I think the worst we got was 40 people to 50 people maybe was the maximum we ever had. But yeah, it's now every single person that flies into our city has to go into a hotel for two weeks or 14 days before they're allowed to um, be released into the public. Remind me not to go there. You have to pay for the hotel stay now as well from uh, the start of the month, which is about two and a half thousand dollars. Yeah, I'm not going on that trip. Oh, yeah. It's a very expensive uh, thing to try and come here to Australia. Well, the, the, in New we York. don't have a problem. So we're, at, we're back to normal. We go to work. We go, to, we go out for dinner. We've got restaurants. You can, we're supposed to social distance, we, you know, but nobody has it in the public, so we don't have to worry. There's only five people in the hotel that have it. We're uh, in the little area that we are at, and you know because you've talked to me on the phone. Yes. We haven't missed a day. We're actually working more. My wife's in the medical field, and she hasn't missed a day. She, they want her to work more. Um, other than the foolish mask thing, you know, really, I got to wear a mask? Why? <laughs> you know? Come on. Let's let, let's be real about it. But I, I get it. You know, everybody's freaking out. The news has got us all freaked out about it. Um, it was pretty pretty scary at the start. I um, It just happened to be right when it started to get cold here in Australia. I got the flu. Oh, just, yeah, I got a bit of a cough and oh, the boss wouldn't let me go to work because it was right as everything, the news was really heavy about it. So I had to take the time off work to, to get better. Otherwise, customers would not come in. <laughs> <laughs> Just stand there, blow my nose or something. Yeah, customers going to freak out. We, uh, my wife and I and my parents, because we caretake for my mom and dad, and um, the whole house got sick in February. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't get sick that often, but I got sick and I had a high fever and was in bed. My wife wanted to take me to the hospital because I had a 104 and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not going to the doctor. Why? We're watching a movie. I feel great. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I know I'm a little warm, but you know, whatever, drank some water and finished watching the movie and woke up the next day and went to work. Yeah. <laughs> cool. What are you going to do? Right. That's it. Can't sit around all day. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. So, if we got to get back on, uh, get back to the fun stuff, and talking about ATVs, how did your your professional career in the um, Australian Championships? Uh, do you still race those, or are they done? Are you done? Um, uh, I've been. In the last, since 2009, I raced pro championships in Australia. 2010, you know, we were close with Paul Holmes coming to Australia and racing and Mark Watson. That opened my eyes up again on how fast you can really go. Um, 
and there's been a handful of riders that have gone to America and raced in the Pro-Am Championship and then have come back back to our series here. Um, but, yeah, I haven't raced the National Championship since 2018. I didn't go last year. I, was, I actually was injured um, through a work accident. So that put me out of going last year. And this year it's been cancelled. But, yeah, I don't know if we'll go back again. It's up in the air. Uh, emotionally, physically, or just done? Um, it's more the financial side of it. Well, that's uh, part of it. It's a, it's a, you know what it's like with racing? It's You're going to go to a national championship. You need to take, and we're traveling all the way to the other side of Australia. You know, you've got 3,500 kilometers to get there. You need two brand new motors. Everything needs to be brand new tires, everything plus flights, accommodation, hire cars. It's it all adds salary. up. It's big, big, like, you know, I work from, I don't make a lot of money and I pay for everything myself. Mm-hmm. And I could put that away for a house. There you go. Start it's, a life. You know, I'm at that stage of my career now where it's like, it's a lot of money to go for a ride because that's all it is. You're racing for a championship. There's no money. There's no bonuses. You know, you win the event, you get a medallion. They don't give you a paycheck anymore. used to, I won national titles and made $2,000 to three, two and a half thousand. You know, that was a big paycheck for me. Now you race for nothing. Right. You're just doing it for a hobby. For a trophy. Yeah. It's a lot of money for a hobby. That's the way we look at it now. Yeah, I get it. I, I mean, it's getting that way here in the States. The, the, the checks are getting smaller and the cost to build the machines is getting more, more expensive. Especially since the dollar went, we went, it was dollar for dollar back in 2000, from 2010 to 2013. It didn't matter. We would buy, I'd buy five tires a week from the, off the internet and just get them shipped across. So it was dollar, you know, it didn't matter. We'll buy heads and sending motors to America and doing all that sort of thing. And, and we were getting big horsepower and then, you know, and that changed when the dollar dropped. It went, it went down 50 cents. The conversion rate is just through the roof. As you would know, when I try and buy parts. Right. Right. <laughs> and the bodies yeah, that we're buying now, it's like, whoa, $2,000 for a set of arms. Maybe even more if you buy Walsh ones or something. Unbelievable. Yeah, the same with buying stuff from uh, Europe. It's yeah, crazy prices. Doesn't it doesn't warm the heart, does it? No, and that's what hurts more that you're spending this money to build bikes, and yeah, it's just you know you get no investment. There's no return. No, because you can't even sell them for what you paid because nobody sees the value that you do. No, there's bikes for sale here. And they're just not moving because people don't want to pay the money. Right. I believe it. And And especially we've gone the hybrid route in Australia now. So that's also, you know, if you're buying an $8,000 motor pretty much when you're going to buy a bike. Right. And the hybrid deal does not make it cheap. No, they're not as great as everyone says they are. You You don't like the hybrid as much? Um, they have their benefits and there's, uh, there's good and bad things about them. Do you, when you put, start really getting into it, 
do you put your CRF motors in quad chassis? Or are you building custom chassis and adapting the suspension to it? Uh, we just run the factory chassis and cut it to fit. We have a, I have my own fab guy that modifies the frames um, and gussets them and does all the, the strengthening on the TRX frame. Right. So beat it to fit, paint it to match, and run it? Yeah, uh, it's all top quality work. There's nothing dodgy going on. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, all quality. So uh, my guy's really, really good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, we, we all are into the – on the Hondas, the Honda frame's not as strong as I'd like it to be, but after you add all the gussets and, and fix all the things that uh, are weak, um, they'll last a couple of seasons. And you got to do it. Yeah. We're very lucky here. We, um, you can purchase them secondhand pretty for a decent price. So when it comes to building a new bike, it doesn't become so expensive. You can turn them over pretty quickly with, um, cheaper bikes. What do you do with the leftover motorcycle parts? Does somebody buy those from you? Um, I was lucky enough. Somebody wanted to put a two stroke into his 450 frame. So mm -hmm. I purchased the motor and wiring harness from them. Oh, dude, stole it. Yeah. So that was pretty good. But I know a lot of guys try and sell the roller off um, that they pull the motor out of here. But we've also got the outlaw carts. Um, they're chasing motors as well. So anything that pops up cheap these days is you've got to be very quick to buy it. Because somebody, for the ATV guy and the... the, and the outlaw carts. carts. Yeah, the outlaw yeah. carts. Are they like the mod carts over here that the kids race or are they adults racing them um they're those uh sprint mini sprint car outlaws okay, okay. Yeah. How, how big is that racing i have absolutely no idea never seen it i just know that it happens <laughs> that's too funny yeah. so is there uh is there a wedding in the future here sure not on my cards Wow. Looking to buy a house, but uh, no, uh, no wedding in the future. They're busy racing. <laughs> so. It's okay. You're the same age as my son. Uh, he was born in September of 91. So uh, you're the same age. And uh, his, I went to Idaho just a few weeks ago to meet his newborn son. So my, my, number, my sixth grandchild. Yeah, we haven't really been down that route yet. I've never really talked about it. So just with racing and um, everything, it's just, yeah, very concentrated on other things in my life. Well, if you find but, a good dude, don't let her go. But 29 years old, you know, you know, things have got to, got to look at where you're going with life soon, so can't play forever. Yeah, you can. I worked oh, it out. Well, don't worry. <laughs> I worked it out. Trust me. I worked it out. <laughs> we got we got too many bikes to play with. So uh, two strokes, four strokes, we've got them all. I look at it this way. There's there's another race to go to tomorrow, you know. Uh, my, yep. my, my my tools are packed. Let's go. Yep, that's it. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I wasn't I fortunately I didn't get to race um as much. I was more I was always a better mechanic than I was a racer. I did get to race a, a few years and, and have a great time doing it, but I, I was there because I was the wrench, not because I was the, the fast guy. Yeah. 
I have a few friends that I try and help out and talk into come racing. Um, and I'll go and wrench for them um, just to help them out, you know, just to get them on the track because I know they're very good riders, but it's just that in between the motos, they just don't want to do that sort of work. So I try and do it for them. It, it takes a lot more than most people are willing to pay in physical exertion to be a race mechanic or to prep machines to go racing or to load the truck and, and prepare, prepare all the things that need to be prepared and recheck and check that machine for every little nuance that there is. Um, I get that. And um, the teams that I've worked for, the riders, they're super appreciative because, yeah, I want to ride and I want to race, but I don't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, we went away the, uh, a few weeks ago. And um, it's just me and my two buddies. And I didn't take my dad, which normally does the washes the bike and does all that work when I'm not when I'm riding. And yeah, it's just you're flat out between every race, just trying to come in, watch it, prep it again, back out again. After at the end of the day, it was a two day event, so that night, full prep the machine again. And yeah, it's just yes, yeah, full on when you're by yourself. Yep. Um, and that's what I found very very hard when I went to Europe. Uh, I went by myself and stayed with a friend and he was winning the championship in Holland at the, at that time. So he had his buddies helping him and I was by myself and we had two hours between eight, between the races and I had to try and clean my bike and prep it and hope it lasted the, the 25 minute race. And take care of yourself. Yeah. And try and eat food. You know, you, you're trying to hydrate the whole lot into, in two and a half hours. Yeah, and it's just not enough. You gotta have you gotta have that you gotta have somebody there to give you that 15, 20 minutes to, to gather your own self back together. Yeah. There's just a it's a big deal. When you're trying to race for a championship, yeah, you need support, you need a crew behind you. And you yeah. don't realize till you leave and you do it by yourself how much you actually rely on your support crew exactly. at the event. Exactly. I'm lucky enough. I've got my mother and father there every time I go racing. So wherever I go, whenever I want to go racing, they're 100% behind me. That's awesome. That's the, you can't beat that. Uh, my parents stopped going to the races when I was in my early twenties. Um, you know, but you got to figure my, my dad had been traveling to the races, uh, you know, since he was a young man and he, and he was in his, in his fifties at that point in time. So I can understand why he didn't want to go anymore. And my mom said, hey, you're old enough now. I don't need to be here <laughs> and I don't want to be here. <laughs> yeah. My dad was, was racing as I turned pro. So we we're both racing at the time and he would race and try and help me at the same time because my races were so much longer than his. Um, and then, yeah, from 2010 was the last year he raced at, in the uh, 45 plus age class. And then it was me and my sister. So we would race competitively together. We're in the same class. Me and my, my sister would race in the pro class as well. Um, and then she would race women's when it would come to the national title championship. Um, but yeah, he would look after her and I would try and pay a mechanic to come and look after myself just to take the pressure off my, my dad. That's awesome. 
the family affair. Did she yeah, ever win the women's title? Yeah, we're the first two, first family to have a women's and pro championship in the same year. We both won. That's so cool. It was pretty cool to rock up the following year with the with the bikes with both number ones on on the bikes to the the following year. I bet it was. I bet it was. She doesn't ride anymore. Doesn't race anymore because she moved. Yeah, she moved away, and I bought all the stuff off her, off her all her bike stuff. And um, they have a bike, but it's been sitting in a container for six years with the motor in pieces. <laughs> Good old Kawasaki four fifty. <laughs> Um, but yeah, one day we'll put an electric start Kawasaki motor in it or something. There you go. That's what I want to do for her, but <laughs> wow, well, a lot brother, more than a two day job. <laughs> just another project, right? That's all it is. Well, brother, I really appreciate your time. I know that I'm eating up your weekend and your fun time. Um, I really appreciate you coming and sitting down with ATV Talk. Um, I'm going to want some update information from you later on in the year. So plan on sitting down with me again if you if you don't mind. Um, yep, we're in the middle of racing now. So yeah, we've still got another two months of competing to go. We've got a desert race and two more championship rounds to go. Well, I want, so. a, I want an update at the end of the year and and uh, maybe you get some other good stories in there and um, maybe you'll have a spider on the wall when you talk to me next time. Yeah, we might be able to find something for you. Uh, just make sure it's a small one, okay? A small spider? Yeah. Small spider. I don't want one of them giant ones, you know, that's going to wave at me and freak me out. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I know we're thousands of miles apart, but still, you know, I'm a sissy. Okay, what do you want me to say? <laughs> no, they're all good. They won't hurt you. That's good. That's good. You keep them over there then. <laughs> All right, brother, you go have some fun and uh, don't forget to reach out and thank you very much for your time. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you and, and getting to know you. And uh, I think you got a good thing going over there and I'm a little jealous, uh, you know, because of the wildlife and some of the things that you get to experience. Uh, likewise, I'm sure if you came over here and got to experience some of the stuff you'd be, you'd be pretty ecstatic. So yeah, one day we'll be able to pack the bags and come over. That's the next, next plan. Well, Australia's on my bucket list. So, um, you, you know, I'm, I'm not one foot in the grave yet, but I'm getting older every day. So that's uh, it. I, I gotta, gotta plan that trip. Yeah. All right, brother, go ride. No Have some fun. Again, thanks for coming on ATV talk. We'll talk soon. Yeah. See you later. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Former off-road professional Garen Fuller with his team at EC Homes, a top-notch real estate company, will help you buy or sell a home. Visit our website, ECHomesForSale.com, to get a free analysis on your home. Please mention ATV Talk for a 1.5% listing fee. Visit echomesforsale.com. Make sure you let them know who sent you. San Diego's Body Evolution Wellness Center 
with over 17 years experience. Dr. Heidi looking after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking after your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolutions.org or call for an appointment, 858-571-0160. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.